Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that'd be really helpful. Our guest today is Logan Langberg, principal at Imaginary Ventures. Imaginary is a venture capital fund that invests in early stage opportunities at the intersection of retail and technology in Europe and the US. Some of their investments include Everlane, Glossier, and Daily Harvest. Logan previously was an investor at Alliance Consumer Growth, a leading consumer growth equity fund, where he invested in and supported Harry's, Lola, Honest Kitchen, among other innovative consumer companies. It was an absolute blast chatting with Logan about food and Bev, future retail, and much, much more. Please keep in mind that this was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic. Without further ado, here's Logan. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Mike. So you worked in the growth equity sides of things. What what made you come down to uh, the early stage investing in venture capital? The first part of my career doing later stage consumer. And a lot of those businesses were more traditional. Um, So they were focused in the wholesale route and the retail sectors. And what I noticed was because it's never been easier to start a consumer company today online, uh, businesses today were emerging solely on e-commerce. Um, and you know, as I became looking more and more interested in that sector, uh, I've been you know focused a lot, even at these later stage growth funds, in earlier businesses. Uh, so for me, going into kind of the seed and Series A and early stage venture in consumer was a way for me to understand the entire landscape. It was a way for me to understand these brands that I'm seeing starting online and then quickly scaling to offline channels. Um, so it was really an interest in, in learning about all of the, the different angles you can use to grow a business. But in addition, uh, it was a way for me to basically take what I learned in growth and see if I could apply that earlier to earlier stage businesses and help them grow to the point where they've proven that concept and then are growing towards their exit. That's fascinating. I mean, just just even backing up even further, what made you want to stay in consumer or, or attracted you there in the first place? Even before growth equity, I had started my career after college doing consumer and retail investment banking. Uh, consumer for me was always incredibly tangible. Um, all the sectors that we looked at uh, are things that we uh, interact with, we eat, we wear on a daily basis, right? So, you know, for me, when I was thinking about where I want to go within investing, uh, there are people that invest in generalist categories. They're doing some fintech. They're doing enterprise. Uh, I wanted to be an expert in in one category. That was the goal. Uh, for me, after banking, you know, I got to work on large companies. You know, I've worked on the Hudson Bay Sachs acquisition, uh, but then also helped write the S1 for SoulCycle as a banker. And it just kind of clicked these earlier high growth businesses were so much more exciting. They were, you know, right at the heart of what consumers were talking about, especially millennials. Um, And yeah, I I kind of just kept with that consumer focus. And, you know, when I went into growth, 
and then went into venture, I was seeing all sides of the life cycle of every different type of consumer business. So for me, it was really just kind of adding that education onto the previous experiences I've had. But, you know, I'm a bit of a consumer junkie. Uh, you know, growing up in New York, uh, obsessed with retail, obsessed, obsessed with, you know, food and beverage. And, you know, it, it's amazing to invest in things that you're actually using on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you're a uh, consumer junkie. That's 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 great. And also, it's it's really fascinating to see how your career you kind of built it on top of each other, right? And kind of these different layers that uh, uh, that have just toppled, uh, that have just accumulated to become you become uh, a domain expert in, in specific areas. It's really cool. And I I wanted to go back to your first point about why you shifted from the growth equity to venture and talk about you know a little bit about the D 2 C channel customer acquisition online is now has now become incredibly expensive how do you think about the future of of the d2c channel yeah uh you know it's on a lot of people's minds in consumer investing uh for me uh direct to consumer is just another channel right just like retail just like wholesale and the trick to consumer brands is really selling in channels where your your customer is, right? And it's selling uh, where you can have the highest amount of margin, the highest amount of repeat and dictate your story. For a while, when direct consumer businesses were emerging, it was really a price play, right? If you look at you know the Caspers and the Warby Parkers and the Harrys of the world, it was, hey, how can we cut prices by 20, 30% from legacy players? Uh, direct-to-consumer because of the rising costs and, uh, of customer acquisition and the premiumization of brands, it's really become much more of a premium play than how it originally started. Uh, so for us, you know, what we see is we see uh, consumer businesses starting online because it's still the easiest and cheapest way to do it and you can reach the most amount of customers, but quickly scaling into other channels. You know, most of the businesses in imaginary are, are not just solely focused uh, direct, um, but have meaningful e-commerce businesses. Uh, and it really differs on each category, right? Like when you were first going on online, it was a lot of Facebook arbitrage. You know, CACs were super low. Uh, customer acquisition uh, was just a totally different landscape because it wasn't as competitive. Uh, you know, that has really changed now. So, you know, part of what's really interesting me about growth equity uh, going into venture is kind of seeing all these channels like we talked about. And, you know, profits and and marketing spend are things that are very much on our radar and imaginary. I mean, that's the reason why half of our businesses in our portfolio today are actually profitable. Um, so it, we're really conscious of it. We're really conscious of backing businesses that are stable with reoccurring revenue rather than businesses that are really just paid marketing landscapes. Um, I want to talk to you as well about the DDC channel. It seems like, you know, now because it's it's kind of easier than ever uh, than ever to launch a brand right due to the the due to e-commerce and the ddc channel it's become uh, so cheap uh, uh, a lot cheaper and so it's it's yeah it's just um it's just a lot easier for people to do how do you think about brand in today's era like it seems like so many now ddc brands out there that you know might have these incredible stories but 
they they're almost it's 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 i feel like the actual differentiation on brand is now just so hard to do in a customer's eyes i think you have to first ask yourself what is the reason that you are selling online is it just because it's cheaper to start is it the you know warby parker of everything or is there a real reason for being to selling online right certain categories work online much better than others. So for example, the food and beverage category, like a $7.5 trillion category, is still predominantly in wholesale. Um, and it's on online retailers like an Amazon or a Jet because of the way that the shopper is purchasing, right? People want food and beverage in bundles and very few companies have been really successful of building their own brand on their own direct website in that category. You know, when you look at something like beauty, you know, they've been able to really, really grow because it's a more emotional category. It's much more brand filled. Um, and they've been able to use the shopping behavior to, to grow meaningful businesses online. So, I mean, to answer your question, I, I, brand is really at the heart of everything we do. Um, and, you know, within the consumer sector, because there is so much capital right now going towards uh, entrepreneurs, there's been a lot of Me Too businesses. Uh, the thing that we look at is we look at the founder's story. We look at, you know, is this super authentic? Is there a reason the founder is starting this business? You know, and is there a reason for its existence, right? Is this another beverage that's sitting on the shelf? Or is this changing the way we've previously shopped and the way we've, you know, purchased legacy brands? So, you know, I think while brand becomes a lot of the moats that these consumer companies are talking about, you know, it's not enough today to just build fancy packaging, sell it online, and, and have a really unique subscription model because, you know, that's been done and that's saturated. So it really does come down to the product and the authenticity of it. It's a great point. How, how do you think about good growth, bad growth, when a company should optimize for profitability rather than growth? Profitability and growth historically have been somewhat uh, of a lever switch, right? So it, companies usually optimizing for growth, uh, which, you know, for the past decade, the marketing consumer has been paying off revenue multiples for venture stage businesses. Uh, they're investing in that growth. And because of that, they are not going to be profitable because their marketing spend, their team spend, uh, and everything in their paid acquisition lens has been much larger than companies that may be growing 30 to 50%, but are burning far less cash, right? So historically, it, it really depends on what kind of business uh, you're trying to build and what kind, of, what kind of category that company is in. You know, we generally don't look at a lot of the businesses that are, are basically paying for their revenue, right? So when, when you have a business that is, you know, spending north of 60% of their, of their net revenue on, on paid acquisition, uh, that's a business to me that doesn't feel very stable. Um, and that's a business that, you know, is acquiring new customers and probably has a lot more churn. Uh, you know, so what we look at is we really look at if there's strong repeat. Uh, we look at if there's a strong organic growth. And again, a lot of that comes down to what the category is, what the product is. Uh, is it fundamentally better? Is it changing the way we consume in that, in that industry? Um, you know, it, it is really interesting because there are certain categories where you're going to need to spend more because they're category creators, right? So uh, you need to acquire customers in an industry 
um, for the first time in order to build that industry. But you know, if we look at categories that there are two to three players that are spending an inordinate amount of money, it's very tough to back that third player, right? Um, it just becomes a bit of an arms race that we don't really want to deal with. So you know, a lot of the businesses that we've been looking at have had really strong margins, right? They have had really strong repeat, and they have the capacity to spend unpaid because the rest of their unit economics are so strong that the business can still grow at 100% plus, but still not burn a meaningful amount of cash. Do you think that in terms of the overall landscape of venture capital that it's uh, changed or starting to change? So I think there's there's two things here, right? A lot of this is dictated by the macro market, right? And, and for the last, let's call it a decade, um, people have been paying based on growth. And what's happened is there's the time has kind of changed and to the point where people have said, okay, the public analysts, the equity research analysts that look at these consumer public companies um, have destroyed these businesses because they don't see a route to profitability um, because they looked inside the hood and saw that there was tremendous amounts of growth, but growth from new customers continuing to pay more and more for marketing dollars. So what I do think is I think the landscape is changing. I think that people are going to have to be more conscientious, not necessarily investing in profitable companies, but at least investing in companies with a real path to profitability. You know, I don't necessarily think if you are an early stage consumer business, you should be profitable right away, but I think you should be spending your dollars really meaningfully. Um, so people are getting a little bit more creative on how they go out and spend their marketing dollars. They're going out and becoming a little bit more um, susceptible to other channels, right? Five, six years ago, I think there was a, a bit of a different stomach for wholesale channels. Now I think you're seeing a lot of direct consumer businesses partner with these with these wholesalers and go really deep. You know, if you look at Harry's, they did an exceptional job going deep with Target and then Walmart and then the drug channel. Um, and I think the big difference is a lot of these digitally native businesses built engines online to let's call it 100, 150, $175 million in revenue uh, before their CAC and their, you know, the return on ad spend started to not really make sense, right? Their unit economics started to break. And at that point they said, you know what, we need to go and focus on other channels in order to fix this growth. I think what's gonna happen now is you're gonna see, you know, this true omni-channel strategy happen much earlier. You know, these online businesses are not gonna wait till they have 150 million in revenue, but they're gonna probably start, you know, in their second or third year, testing other channels. Um, I think what it's been proven is it's been proven that, you know, the customer is not only stronger, but their LTVs are, are, are higher and the repeat is stronger by having multiple channels anyway. So I think in, in, in hindsight, people are saying, wow, like our direct consumer business has actually been strengthened by the retail doors that we put out. The Casper S1, has that changed at all how you think about D2C channel or, or, or any thoughts on that? It, it hasn't. Um, you know, Casper is one of the original companies that did a phenomenal job building growth. Uh, it hasn't actually changed our view because it's just more of what we're seeing. 
Um, you know, that's why when Imaginary Ventures started, we were so conscientious from the get-go that, you know, we have to make sure we have real stable businesses with organic revenue that people are coming back. I mean, you know, not to knock Casper, they've done some things that are phenomenal um, over the years. Uh, I think, you know, the businesses we actually look at and the categories we look at are actually businesses that have models where people can come back and purchase multiple times a year or multiple times a month, right? I think part of the issue with investing in hard goods uh, that you may have once every two years or three years is that you have to constantly find new customers. Now, when you're a retail business, you get a ton of foot traffic and you get a ton of foot traffic if you're in big wholesale doors, but to do that online meaningfully becomes a very expensive game. So I don't think it's changed our outlook. I think if anything, it's ensured our thesis to really focus on, on core unit economics that work um, and build businesses in a, in, a, in a meaningful, impactful way. Thanks for kind of walking me through a little bit of how you're thinking towards the Casper S1. Building a company such as that, there's only a few people in the world that can do what they've done. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's an incredible company. No one doubts the, the phenomenal success that they've had um, building that business. I, I, I think that what it does is reinstate the need to uh, look at all channels where your consumer is purchasing earlier, right? And not wait until some of the growth has really subsided. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for the record, I am a Casper customer. I actually sleep in a Casper bed every night. What are some of the trends that you're focused on or really the verticals that you're focused on? Yeah, so, you know, because we are really laser focused on consumer, a lot of the stuff we do is is consumer products and brands. Um, you know, I, I see everything in the category. I, it would be a disservice if I were to only focus on one sub-vertical in consumer because it would be too limited. But I spend a lot of my time on food and beverage. I mean, I talked about the category size but I think you know a lot of what we invest in today has a major core focus on wellness, and you know food and beverage is the epicenter of that, right? What people eat is the first thing they think about. Um, you see major trends uh, happening, and I think you know just from an investor perspective, you know legacy conglomerates are continuing to focus on bolt-on acquisitions as their sole solution to growth. I mean, you know, they have not been able to figure out, you know, their R&D. And so they continue to buy companies that are fueling a lot of their growth. Um, you know, it's amazing to see what some of these businesses like Oatly and Blue Buffalo have done over the years. Uh, but that's an, that's an area I spend a lot of my focus on. Um, you know, what we have been doing in, in, starting in this second fund of ours is, is also really focusing on a bit of the kind of platforms that enable a lot of these brands, right? So hiring platforms, you know, in retail specifically, you know, hiring employees has been a real problem. There's so much turnover, especially in fast casual, um, you know, looking at inventory management. But, you know, I look at services, I looked at the childcare space, I look at, you know, healthcare as a consumer business, um, you know, I look at, you know, I think a really interesting category is elderly, but uh, a large amount of my time goes towards food and beverage. And I would say specialized fashion as well. Very cool. No, thanks for that sum out. I mean, I know we were talking earlier about exits in, in, in food and beverage and, you know, um, 
like a hundred and fifty million dollar exit is still you know incredible, but the but the company might have over fundraised, right? And uh, uh, and you know we're hoping for maybe like a five hundred uh, million dollar uh, exit or, or or something along that lines. Can you just walk us through what you, what you're kind of seeing in terms of exits and and how you're thinking about fundraising for for for, fu- for food and beverage specifically? Yeah, look, there there's two types of exits in food and beverage. There's the bolt-on acquisitions that are going for like one to five hundred million dollars, which happen all the time, right? They're, those are much more common. And then the less common ones are the major acquisitions of consolidation, you know, Conagra buying Pinnacle for $11 billion or General Mills buying Blue Buffalo for $8 billion. I mean, those acquisitions uh, don't really happen all the time. And the large acquisitions in food and beverage, like the buys of the world for 1.7 billion are incredibly rare. But what that means is you can build a business specifically in food and beverage, but not just that category within all of consumer as early stage investors. If you're getting in at a reasonable valuation, let's call it under 30 million and you sell it at $300 million uh, exit, as long as you're not overcapitalized, there is a true path to making 10x your money. Um, you know, what we look at is we look at a lot of those acquisitions where, you know, the Estee Lauders and the L'Oreal's of the world are buying beauty innovations and, you know, the Conagra's and the General Mills of the world are, are looking at food innovations. Um, and so that's kind of a, where we play, you know, obviously there's going to be the breakout success businesses that, uh, exit or IPO for north of a billion. And that happens. Um, but I think be- being early stage investors, noticing these businesses um, really at the seed and A stage gives us the opportunity to really have an outsized investment, even if it's under a billion. So, and and talk me through a little bit about how you think about today's landscape. Fundamentally, you know, we're playing in seed and series A businesses, um, you know, not to mention, you know, there are certain opportunities that we do that are later stage, and we'll probably make five of those per fund, um, and what we call these opportunistic growth investments. But, you know, anywhere from one to seven million is kind of where we play in and owning a, a meaningful stake in the business. Um, you know, I, I think what's really interesting is over the past five years, you know, seeds and series seeds have looked more like series A's, A's have looked more like series B's and so forth. And so you're seeing a lot of growth equity funds kind of play down a little um, because of valuations going up. I think that's going to change. I think, you know, like you said, Mike, there's just an absolute abundance of capital. Um, some of these businesses are incredibly strong. Some of them are not as strong. And, you know, if this were a bit of a tighter market, um, some of those businesses would probably go away. So, uh, you know, I think more than ever, because valuations are higher than ever, it, it, it really, valuation does matter. Um, it matters because when you do look at the consumer category, especially within products, there is a cap um, to where you exit. So, you know, the difference between a $20 million pre-money and a $30 million is actually pretty meaningful. So it just means you really have to dive into the company and understand their growth trajectory, understand the white space, understand the, the repeat and the KPIs that are strong enough to make the case. Um, but, but yeah, like, I, I look, I think uh, in any market where there's excess capital, it's going to push valuations up. So the trick is to, you know, 
to understand on both ends, right? Like that we can be real strategic players and understand that entrepreneurs are trying to grow a meaningful business that's around in 10 years rather than a business that is going to be overcapitalized and may not have an exit. Right. I mean, I just, I really just love learning about what what folks such as yourselves think about the different stages and kind of these these macro market trends that are happening. I was talking to uh, Paul Martino at Bullpen and just hearing as well how he invests and, and thinks about it with, um, he invests in the post-seed stage. So a lot of the companies uh, that he invests in uh, go through a seed, but don't quite have the metrics to, to raise that series A. It's exactly what you're saying, right? A lot of people think, oh, if you overcapitalize as an entrepreneur, what happens is at the end of the road, you have to get a valuation that warrants um, your previous investors. And if you're not there, then you're going to be pinched. But it's not just at the exit. I mean, imagine a business that then raises $25 million um, or or let's call it they raise a number of, uh, of capital at the A off an amazing launch that had really strong PR. Now, if they raise that capital, that's great. Now, if they have a slow year the year following, they're going to end up having a flat round or down round if they can't cover the valuation that they just raised on, right? So, you know, you think about this as a, as a long-term play and, you know, I always push these entrepreneurs to really understand what they're raising for, right? I think that, you know, it's a little bit challenging when you're a pre-launch business. A lot, most of the businesses we look at have already launched to have some sort of either data or proof of concept. But, you know, I think I try to push them to see how much capital do you need, where that's going to take you. I mean, is that 12 months? Is that six months? Is that 18 months? At the seed and series A stages, um, could you mind walking me through your due diligence process and your investment criteria? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it really depends on, on stage, right? The earlier you go, as you know, the less data I have. And so it, the founder becomes more and more important. And I would put the, the founder and their, you know, their ability and uh, their reason for, for starting this business as obviously the number one, right? That, at the end of the day, at this stage, you're always backing founders. Um, but, you know, we look at industry size, we look at reasons to exist, right? Like we've now talked about this a number of times, especially in a market um, that is so crowded. Um, is this another me too? Or is this actually fundamentally different than what's out there um, and can it take market share from you know the larger players but you know we're very thesis driven since we do only operate in consumer most of what we do is in categories we know really well um, so generally speaking we've already dissected the category built a thesis and kind of seen the metrics that we want to see um, and then whether we find the right company it, you know that's just dependent on what's out there. Um, but looking at, you know, repeats, looking at good margins, is this profitable one for first purchase? Should this be looking at really strong retention rates if this is a subscription business? Um, you know, looking at the levers you can pull, right? A lot of these businesses have really good launches and then kind of plateau um, because of the competitive landscape and because of the differentiation, you know, does this have levers to kind of pull into more products in their platform, extend to other categories? Um, you know, where can you go with this? That's kind of all things we look at, but everything is really driven off of a thesis 
assets um, to then kind of make an investment in that category of who we think is the leading player. Got it. And, you know, focusing on that early stage, what what are some qualities in a founder that 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 you look for or focus on or kind of what's your walk me through a little bit of like your criteria for, for for evaluating founders yeah look i think the founder obviously has to be really driven i have to see that that founder is an operator who can kind of take this business uh to like the growth stage or to the next level um really authentic um, it's hard to back founders that come up with a really good idea but have never you know, lived and breathed in that category, right? If you're you're pitching something based on health and wellness, um, and and you don't live by it, it it's tough. You know, consumers today are, are see right through it. Um, so you know, really understanding why the founder is starting this. Are they driven? Do they have the same vision that aligns with you? You know, some of the times, you know, channel distribution product assortment, you know, doesn't necessarily align with what we see the opportunities are for this business. Um, a lot of it is alignment and a lot of it is vision, but, you know, we, we really are backing strong operators that have an ability to grow a business and get it to that $100 million point, or at least um, where there's real proof of concept to the next stage of that life cycle. How do you think about market expertise when it comes to criteria for founders? Yeah, look, it's a really good point. I also think there's two types of companies, right? There's companies that you can be a pet food entrepreneur starting another pet food in a category that is, you know, $30 billion in the US. You can also be an entrepreneur that's starting a business in a category that doesn't exist yet, right? And you're a category creator. And so it's understanding on the latter is how do they come up with that thesis um, and what kind of vision do they have and what are they basing it off of? You know, what, 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 kind, of, what kind of path do they take to get to that position? I don't necessarily think the, um, the entrepreneur has to have, you know, 20 years of experience in that category because that's often not the case. And a lot of these founders are, are super young too. Um, but I do agree with what you said with, the idea is they have to have a vision that's different, right? They have to have a perspective um, that we haven't really seen before. And that gives them an angle because what that translates to is the brand. And that's where the brand has an angle. You know, I, I, we've backed founders that didn't know anything about the category, but were super big hustlers that, you know, absolutely lived and breathed um, in the messaging that they promoted and we saw them as operators and we saw them as people that are going to learn about the categories now again that 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 really comes down to the individual categories right like if you're starting a beauty business uh you probably want an entrepreneur that has had some you know experience in beauty um you know categories that are large and have existed that's probably more the case it's the ones that don't exist and the ones that are creating categories that is really about perspective. I mean, I'll give you an example though. Like you take uh, one of our later investments that announced last week, uh, CAN, which is a, a low dose THC beverage, which, you know, the thesis there is really disrupting the alcohol category, right? There's a, a rising trend towards sobriety and there's actually a definition of what sobriety is. It's sobriety within alcohol versus complete sobriety. That category doesn't exist yet. You know, THC beverages is like a sub $10 million category. You know, it's 
how do we believe on a macro scale over the next 10 years uh, or next five years, is that going to really legitimize that category? Is it going to grow to a couple hundred to a billion dollar category? I mean, there's no way an entrepreneur can have a ton of experience there. You know, they can have experience in beverages, they can have experience in cannabis, but some categories are just new. And so it's really, for me, it's the importance of the perspective of who they're going after, right? Do they understand the demographic? Is the thesis similar to us? Um, you know, and that, that's, that's, that's just an example of one that really matters to us because they're creating that category yeah and just uh and just also maybe something else and you can certainly welcome to disagree with me i'm thinking about it as well in terms of how competitive uh, the landscape of the market is i'd imagine someone that you know if it's a market that's very very competitive someone that has you might need to have someone that has that market expertise because um they might know the nuances of the problem right um, like the particular nuances if it's a competitive landscape where if it's not as competitive, maybe the insight is almost more obvious, right? Where you don't need that market expertise. One, 100%. And I'll give you another example. An investment I made earlier last year was a company called Majuri, um, which was you know, an affordable uh, jewelry business that was started by uh, Maj and, and Nora. And you know, Nora was a third generation jeweler. Um, you know, it, the, her expertise from her family and what she was doing and what she's seen over the years had huge implications on why that business is so successful. I mean, you know, she not only understood the thesis behind, you know, female consumers wanting to uh, purchase jewelry at a better price point that was more inspired by female empowerment, that was a bit less emotional because of a $1,600 purchase that you would purchase at Cartier uh, during your Christmas holiday versus something that you can really accessorize and express yourself. And then she coupled that with unbelievable su supply chain knowledge that she picked up through the years and generations of where she, you know, of what her family did. So that's a category that one of the reasons we were so impressed by the founders is because they lived that category for, for years. Um, and, and better than you know, anyone in their field. So you're absolutely right. It really does depend on what the category is you know you don't want to get into a super crowded category with a founder that has never done it before right but if there's a totally new perspective then i think it becomes really interesting yeah absolutely i mean as your like previous example like beauty extremely competitive space right like hyper competitive and so um you know you need a founder that probably has some domain expertise when it comes there Right. Otherwise, how are you going to innovate on formulas, right? I mean, like we look at, you know, we're really excited with one of our investments called COSIS. I mean, thinking about the clean landscape and, you know, it becomes an expertise dome. It becomes something that you obviously have to live and breathe, but it also becomes a knowledge base for how you can create product that's just better than what's out there. How are you thinking about the future of retail? You know, like I am a big believer in retail. I think, you know, what's interesting is you look at 2019 and everyone says the apocalypse came, you know, 9,500 retail doors closed. But then you look at it and it was like north of 75% of the closes um, 
happened with like 16 retailers, right? So, you know, we, you know, the last three investments that we've made, two of them have been retail investments. I think that retail's not going away. If anything, like we talked about, a lot of these social media brands are now pivoting into other channels, retail being one of them. But I think it's just, what is the survival of the fittest? What is the next version of what retail looks like? It may not be, you know, 50,000 square foot malls. It may not be massive doors that you have 4,000 of them. It may just be 100 to 200 really well done, really good margins um, that almost mimic, uh, you know, your experience online. You know, so I think like five years ago, a lot of venture funds would not go anywhere near retail. Um, And I think, you know, in consumer, you know, my background working at Alliance Consumer Growth, where they invested in things like Shake Shack and Tender Greens and Blaze Pizza and specialty retail as well. You know, I think it, it shows that that channel can be super profitable if done correctly, if your four-wall EBITDA margins are really strong. So, I mean, I'm a huge believer in it. I think you're going to only see more and more pop up. I think, you know, in certain areas, you're going to start to see a lot of these direct consumer brands kind of coupled together. Um, but so that's one thing I think that I feel pretty strongly about, um, you know, for every one store that closed this year, there was another 5.2, I think that opened, you know, I think the average holiday in sales in retail this year still grew about like 4.1%, something like that, um, which was like up from like two and a half or so in 2018. So, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. You know, I think another thing we talked about that I'm, negative on is, you know, building these billion dollar companies really fast by paying for them. You know, we've, we've talked about this lever now about profitability versus kind of your, your marketing spend and growth. Um, it's just, you know, we need to be really mindful. I, I would honestly rather back a, a company that's growing at 65, 70% or, or less, depending on the size, uh, that's burning minimal cash than invest in a company that's growing at 400%, but it's losing 20, $30 million a year. So, you know, it, it, it is, it is the way you want to grow these businesses, but I think the businesses that are going to be around for the next decade or, or 20, 30 years from now are the ones that have grown with, with a, a unit economics and a core that actually works. Right. And, it, and so uh, it's one of the biggest things I look at. And, and I think honestly, as consumer investors, some people don't, spend enough time on the product itself. Like you'd be surprised in food and beverage, how many people are investing in the products and haven't even tried the product. Um, I think it's crazy because people look at growth, they look at, you know, um, the brand and the community it's driving. But I think more than ever before with the challenging community, you really have to believe that the product is, is better than what's out there. Um, you know, I think, I think that's going to become more and more meaningful. So, you know, I don't know, um, how out there those thoughts are. I, I think a lot of the thoughts that I have, um, you know, uh, on my strong views are, are backing businesses that are not necessarily, you know, in the, like the zeitgeist of, of what a lot of other venture people want to look at. Um, a lot of them are, but I think, you know, we're just really mindful of backing the best businesses, regardless of the channel. You've touched on there a number of points. What is 
one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Um, you know, I think one of the things that Imaginary does a little bit differently, uh, you know, going into the second fund, we're going to be investing in 15 core companies. Uh, I think that a lot of VCs that are really strong do this super well. Um, the ones that are less strong don't do this as well is provide real value. Um, you know, how do you help besides providing capital actually build these businesses and build them for, you know, them to be a sustainable, you know, business that's around and thriving in 10 years. I think a lot of that comes from the fact that if you're investing in 50 core investments in a fund, you know, it is kind of difficult and, you know, some funds do it well and, 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 and make it work. But for me, you know, I would rather focus on, um, you know, sub 20 or 15 core that I can actually spend a significant time or the team as a whole can spend a significant time really helping the entrepreneurs and holding their hand in any way that they need um, in order to get them through to their next cycle. Um, I think, you know, the one thing that has, is always challenging with venture is that there are so many exciting companies um, at this stage. You know, when you get to a leverage buyout model, you're using a bank and going through SIMS and it's, you know, a process. And, you know, if you're a consumer buyout fund, there's only a handful of businesses that are that size that are available. Uh, so at this stage, there's so many companies, you know, as we said before, I, I love you know, driving these investments through a thesis-driven approach. Um, sometimes that gets very challenging because, you know, these companies are very competitive and they raise very quickly. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I wish, you know, we had a little more time when and actually really be able to dissect the company and spend more time before they, you know, just pass like that and get funded by a, 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 a VC. <clears throat> and, you know, I really wish that there was a diligence process that wasn't always contingent on 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 the competition and and and, and quick speed um but that's life and you know that's not always the case but yeah i mean i guess those are a few things no those are make sense so i mean in, in in terms of like specific tangible uh you know value adds that imaginary has like what are what are some examples that really differentiates your fund from uh from others I think, you know, we really stick to our lane more than anything. Um, I think uh, we know consumer, we've done it before and we'll do it again. And, you know, we're there, uh, whether it's helping hiring teams, helping build out product, helping with the modeling of the company, helping with channels strategy, you know, we're there for all of it. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, we don't want to go general because we want to stick to our lane. Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that having that thesis driven and focus on consumer is a huge value add. And what's one book that has impacted you personally and one book that has impacted you professionally? I read a lot of history books. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with history. I wouldn't say they've motivated me on a professional path. I'm not conquering Europe after reading Napoleon. Um, <laughs> maybe that's in my second life, but I'm pretty obsessed with Winston Churchill. Uh, I try to read almost every biography. So any, anything from like the last lion by William Manchester or even Boris Johnson's Churchill biography was excellent. I mean, he, he should have stuck to writing instead of being a prime minister, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, look, reading about these historical people have been fascinating and it's motivating. Right. Um, and then I guess, for professional, you know, I think 
going into when I was in college, I was thinking VC uh, as one outlet, although I kind of brushed it off and, and said I wanted to go a little bit later stage, but I read uh, Brad Feld's Venture Capital book, which you know is like an opening, I think, for young people. I think it's always super helpful. I think it's helpful to have the glossary of terms and understand um, you know, how to read through a term sheet before you get into the end. Yeah, Winston Churchill's a beautiful writer. What's one piece of advice you have for consumer entrepreneurs? You really got to build something you believe in and have a personal connection to. I mean, consumer categories are so crowded. There are so many products. There's so many Me Too products. You really have to ask yourself, what is the reason for building what is the reason for being do we need this do consumers need this are we disrupting something are we challenging something and when you do build it i would encourage them to build it with margins that work right right from the gate it's always an easier story if you have unit economics from the gate that work you know sometimes that's challenging because you have to scale um, and you know you may not get margins through um, having small inventory runs but really focusing on the core of the unit economics and building something that you believe in that your personal connection to and have you know a, a real authenticity authenticity of of the brand is something that i would always encourage them to do that's a great piece of advice well logan thanks so much for taking the time i really appreciate you coming on thank you so much mike happy to be here and there you have it so many insights from logan it was such a pleasure having him on I really hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. You can follow Logan on Twitter at LangbergLogan. If you're a founder and work out something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, folks.